Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 340, A Bit of a Canute. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Norman, Victoria, and Liz for signing up already. When we left off, Canute had managed to get Edric to go on the record, calling for the execution of the English claimants to the throne. And then, once that suggestion was offered, Canute rejected it, and instead outlawed Edwig and exiled the sons of Edmund to Sweden. And what the public likely didn't know during this period was that Canute had also quietly hired an assassin to finish the job with Edwig. And he had also given orders to King Olaf of Sweden to execute Edmund's sons once they reached his shores. And we know these things because we have the benefit of hindsight, as well as multiple chronicles that were written after the reign of Canute. But if you were living in 1016, you likely knew none of that. All you knew was that you heard from somewhere that Canute had protected the line of Alfred from Edric Strayona's greedy bloodlust. It was a clever move, but there was a small problem with Canute's plan to avoid blame by outsourcing violence. It seems that no one wanted to be his bagman. The assassin that Canute had hired balked at the last minute and refused to carry out his orders. And meanwhile, King Olaf did receive the young sons of Edmund, but he couldn't bring himself to fulfill the request of having them executed. And instead, he did what everyone does when they're given something they don't want. He regifted the boys, sending them on like a magenta sweater to King Solomon of Hungary. And it's likely that he assumed that by having the boys raised in the Hungarian court, that would functionally solve Canute's problems without Olaf having to be party to, you know, the murder of children. But the fact was that all the heirs were still alive, so Canute hadn't actually dealt with any of these threats. The boys were still out there, somewhere, and as for Edwig... Well, he was still in England, and people were calling him the King of the Churls. Not only that, but he apparently was so popular that assassins were refusing to kill him. This was not a good sign. And making matters worse, Canute knew that there were still other rivals out there as well. Have you spotted who was left over? What claimants we haven't talked about? There were two boys in Normandy. Two boys who were the nephews of the powerful Duke Richard II and who were the sons of King Athelred of England. Young Edward and Alfred, as the children of King Athelred and Queen Emma, were an incredibly serious threat to Canute's reign. And even worse, they were well-liked by their uncle Richard, who, as you know, commanded Normandy, which was growing in military strength every year. This whole situation could go sideways on Canute fast. So he sent a messenger to the Norman court, carrying a proposal of marriage. According to William of Jumiege, he offered Emma her weight in gold and silver in exchange for her hand. Now the praise of Queen Emma claims that she was, quote, a lady of the greatest nobility of wealth, but yet the most distinguished of the women of her time for delightful beauty and wisdom, inasmuch as she was a famous queen, end quote. And sure, maybe she was a looker, but let's be real here. The reason why Canute was offering her a king's ransom for marriage 
was likely because the threat that he was facing from Normandy and her two sons by Athelred. And considering that, paying her weight in gold and silver really would have been a bargain. But if that offer actually was made, there is some confusion as to where it would have been made and to whom. You see, the praise places Emma in Normandy. But as we've spoken about before, the praise works really hard to distance Emma from Athelred as much as possible, essentially pretending that they'd never even been married. And it might be due to that motivation that the praise conflicts with other accounts that speak of where Emma was, because other accounts talk about her being in England. One of the better sources we have is Thietmar of Merseburg, and he was writing soon after the events, and he says that Emma wasn't in Normandy. Rather, he says that she was in London when Athelred died, and that she stayed there, and when the Danes came to London about two years later, she was still there dealing with the defense of the city. And at some point during the siege, she agreed to surrender herself along with a lot of military provisions. Now in that version, Canute pressured Emma to marry him while she was still being held prisoner. And if that's the case, then the offer of gold and silver probably wasn't to Emma, but instead it was probably made to her brother, Duke Richard II. However, the Chronicle makes no mention at all of Emma being captured and held by Canute. And instead it says Canute sent to Normandy for, but it doesn't really say whether or not Emma was in Normandy or if Canute was sending to Normandy to get her brother's approval for the marriage. So the fact is, it's actually kind of hard to say precisely what happened and where Emma was during the proposal period. But given their position, as well as the rights to the crown held by the young princes Edward and Alfred, even if this proposal happened while Emma was captured, the Duke of Normandy and Queen Emma would have been able to drive quite a hard bargain because Canute needed this marriage badly. And however the bargain was struck, in July of 1017, Canute and Emma were married, and she became pregnant very shortly thereafter. Now, close listeners might be saying right about now, wait a minute, wasn't Canute already married? And yeah, yeah, he was. He was married to Elfgifu of Northampton, who, as you might recall, had provided him with a strong dynastic claim to the north. Furthermore, Canute and Elfgifu already had two sons, Swain Knutson and Harold Harefoot. And that was a problem, because the church tends to frown on bigamy, regardless of how much you need a new dynastic alliance. And Elfgifu was still very much alive during this period. And unlike Edmund's sons, it's not like he could just send her off to Scandinavia to be killed. So what could Canute do about this? Well, if he was Edgar the Peaceable, he'd just stuff her into a convent and marry the superfine maiden from Devon, or Normandy as it were. But this wasn't the 10th century. Canute was a modern 11th century man, so he went about it a different way, and he, well, we don't know exactly what he did. Elf Gifu was still alive and was apparently still around, and we don't have any record of a divorce or annulment or anything similar. And that's led some scholars to think that it's possible that Canute wiggled his way out of the marriage by using a technicality. You see, many Scandinavians married in ways that weren't recognized as marriages by the church. And so Canute might have convinced the church that he'd just been hand-fasted in the old pagan way. And so this actually wasn't a marriage. And the church, who was probably eager to avoid the conflict, happily looked the other way. But here's the thing with that. If he did make that argument, it would have undermined his marriage to Elf Gifu, which would have damaged his son's claims. 
and it doesn't seem that he wanted to completely disinherit them. So we're left with this open question of Elf Gifu's status and the situation regarding her marriage to Canute. We have no idea how it was resolved, and it looks very much like everyone decided to not look at it too closely and just move on. And in fact, this hear-no-evil-see-no-evil approach is made crystal clear when the praise of Emma describes poor Elf Gifu of Northampton simply as, quote, some other woman, end quote. Nice. But by not fully repudiating the prior marriage while still going forward with his marriage to Emma, Canute had engaged in an age-old English tradition. He'd stared a succession crisis in the face, and then, rather than dealing with it, he kicked the can down the road and said, yeah, that's someone else's problem. And I kind of feel for Elf Gifu here. She had been the subject of dynastic horse trading for years, and now, as her husband attained the highest position in the kingdom, suddenly she lost all of the power she'd managed to wrangle. Emma, on the other hand, despite being in a similar position, had somehow managed to navigate through this mess without even losing the title of queen for more than a matter of months. Her marriage to Canute is not exactly a romantic story, but considering the situation she was in, this was pretty much the best possible outcome. And it turned out that this marriage to Emma was far more advantageous to Canute than simply heading off a rival to the throne. Because Emma had an impressive strategic mind, and she knew her way around medieval politics. Now fair play to Canute. He'd been a quick study, and he'd grown substantially above the young commander that he was back when his father had conquered the kingdom. But at the end of the day, Canute was still a foreigner who would be expected to move deftly through the complicated web of English politics and culture without causing any offense or further conflict. And that is not exactly an easy task. But luckily, or strategically for Canute, the courts of England and the courts of Francia were far more similar than the courts of England and Denmark. And that meant that Emma likely knew how to play English politics far better than Canute did. I mean, she'd been raised in this environment, and more than that, she had already been the Queen of England once before. She was also likely older than Canute, and while it looks like Canute was smart, there's something to be said for experience. And as we're going to see in the record as time goes on, Emma was an extremely shrewd politician. This was exactly the kind of match that can make or break a monarch, and it all came down to whether or not Emma wanted to help him or harm him. And luckily for Canute, he and Emma were on good terms. And so right away we see Emma helping Canute solidify his standing in the South. Because what he might not have realized, but what would have been very obvious to a political figure like Emma, is that it really didn't matter how many Yom's Vikings Canute had if the Sea of Canterbury turned against him. He might be able to conquer England, but without the support of Canterbury, he wouldn't be able to hold it. If you wanted to rule England in peace, you had to have the support of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so Emma persuaded Canute to give some lands to Archbishop Liffing. And functionally, this was a relatively insignificant cost for Canute. But by paying it, it meant that he strengthened the bonds between him and Canterbury. And so right away, this marriage was paying off dividends. And then something unexpected happens. Canute reconciled with Edwig, the king of the churls. And that's a pretty big event. I mean, the brother of Edmund Ironside and potential rival to Canute was no longer an outlaw in England. 
and even more surprising than that, we're not told why. I mean, maybe it's possible that Knut was just feeling bad about that attempted assassination thing. Maybe there are rumors about his involvement in it, and it was starting to look really bad, so politics demanded that he make peace with Edwig. The fact is, there are all kinds of things that could have led to the sudden pardon and reconciliation. But for whatever reason, Edwig was no longer outlawed. And stick a pin in that, because we're getting back to him in a minute. But dealing with the English, and also dealing with English succession issues, was only one line on Canute's task list. He also had all those allies and followers that he had to deal with. And so far, they've been patient. But that would only last so long. They had helped him conquer England. And now that he was officially king, he needed to give them something in thanks. And it seems that for a good number of them, what they were given was land in the southeast. We see local records indicating that Scandinavians were being settled in that area, and often the scribes would use impressive-sounding titles, like Princeps Regis. So this sounds like they're really high-born, impressive Scandinavians. But when you look for the roles and duties that would accompany such a title, you don't find them. And that is incredibly unusual. So it's likely that what happened here is that Canute's band of pirates, when they finally got paid by the king, were happy to settle for some land and, you know, a cool-sounding name. Basically, they got some title bumps without any corresponding increase in pay or responsibilities. But that being said, there were some high-ranking figures who did deserve a little bit more. For example, the support of the Yams Vikings had been critical in Canute's campaign. And as such, their leader, Thorkell the Tall, deserved a special reward. Furthermore, Thorkell was a storied leader with a lot of history in England, as well as a fearsome reputation. And so Canute had an idea. Because there was a region in England that also had an equally fearsome reputation. Having actually fought so hard during the conquest that it would later be immortalized in Scandinavian sagas as Ulfgel's land. And if you have a fearsome Yom Viking who you want to reward with title and land, maybe you should put him in an area where he could use those skills to hold everything down. So Canute shrewdly placed Thorkel the Tall as the Elderman of East Anglia. Now unfortunately, our records out of East Anglia are incredibly poor, so we know next to nothing about what happened prior to or following this appointment. And that really can mean anything. It might be that Thorkel was actually holding a purely ceremonial position and that he was just drawing an income, or hiding in the shadow of the records could be a brutal crackdown of the region, enforced by Thorkel and his fearsome warriors. We really don't know. But Ulfkel's land was Thorkel's land now. And Thorkel wasn't the only Scandinavian who was due for a promotion. The fact was that Canute probably couldn't even have raised an army back in Denmark were it not for the support of his old ally, Eric Lathier of Laid. And as you might remember, previously, Eric had been granted overlordship in Northumbria, but it wasn't really clear how much power he actually had there. And then, following Edmund Ironside's rebellion and the treaty that followed, that becomes even less clear. But now Edmund was dead, and the kingdom was united, and so Canute could properly reward his old ally. So Eric became the official elderman of Northumbria. Though, just because he was appointed as an elderman doesn't mean that he directly governed the day-to-day activities there. When we look at the records, we see that the previously installed eldermen that remained in Northumbria and elsewhere were still there. So it is possible that Eric and the other Scandinavian appointees weren't direct governors, 
but rather these titles granted them the right to certain incomes from those regions and some attached estates. But even if they weren't governing the day-to-day activity, these roles would have locked them into the English web of politics, and it would have locked them in at a commanding station. But Canute wasn't done rewarding Eric Lathier and his family, because Hoken, Eric's son, had also served Canute and had been involved since at least the raids on Worcester. And being that he was from an influential family, he was also looking for a reward. So it appears that following the raids on Worcestershire, Hoken's son of Eric stayed on there, serving in some form of official capacity. It's not clear exactly what that form was, but it appears to have been rather high up. Also on the list of allies that were in need of a reward was a Scandinavian named Hrani, who was appointed as the Elderman of the Magansata. And that meant that Hrani held dominion over southern Shropshire and northern Herefordshire in the Midlands. And that would have granted him a significant amount of authority, not to mention a sizable income and the command over the local firds. So in addition to giving plots of land to his lesser followers, when we look at the records, we see Canute granting overlordship of large portions of England to his most trusted and loyal companions. But at the same time, he was also cutting the kingdom up into smaller, easier to govern regions. East Anglia was now Thorkell's, Northumbria was now Eric's, there were parts of Mercia that were handed out to other people he trusted. It was all getting chopped up, because let's face it, England was too big for one man to govern directly. So while Canute kept control of Wessex to himself, he delegated the taxation and quite possibly the rule of places like Northumbria and East Anglia to his trusted allies. And by doing this, Canute was able to fulfill his duty as a leader because he was making the men who had given him the crown rich. Well, he was making some of them rich. There was one other man who had likely expected a reward. He was a man who commanded a great deal of military power in the Midlands, whose actions had been critical in the undercutting of the defenses of England, and who had fought on the front lines in favor of Canute, and who had actually inspired English retreats back when he had been serving Edmund. Edric Strayona. Canute had to give something to this man, so he made Edric the Elderman of Mercia. But if you look closer at what just happened, it doesn't look as good. On Edric's northern border were the lands of Eric Lathier, and on the eastern border were the lands of Thorkel the Tall. Then on the southern border, there was King Canute. He was surrounded. And actually, even within his own lands, Canute had stationed Eric's son, Hoken, and another one of his allies, Hrani, to govern over those lands as well. Not only that, but Worcestershire and the Magansata were critical parts of Edric Strayona's base of power. We even saw Strayona leading them at Assendon. But now, suddenly, those lands were being taken from him and being placed under the command of Canute's Scandinavian allies. And Canute wasn't an idiot. And so I'm sure that he knew that deliberately provoking Edric would be foolish. But at the same time, it's pretty clear that he wanted Edric on a tight leash. So while he was named the Elderman of Mercia, and he probably did enjoy a pay increase, his actual power was limited. In fact, we don't even know how much direct governing authority he had. So it's quite possible that Edric just had his wings clipped, but he was getting paid off in the hopes that he wouldn't make a fuss about it. And the fact is that a lot of people would have been happy to take that deal. 
but this was Edric Strayona. This was a man who lived and breathed power dynamics, who demonstrated a singular focus on the acquisition of wealth and power, and who was famously jealous of both. And now, he had all of that threatened. So we're told he went straight to London, to the king's palace, to deal with the matter directly. And from the record, it's pretty clear that Edric was livid. According to the praise of Queen Emma, Edric stood before King Canute and pointed out that his actions had tipped key battles against Edmund and towards Canute's favor, and he demanded a reward for what he had done. According to Henry of Huntington, Edric went one step farther and pointed out that it was on his order that Edmund was assassinated, that in fact it was Edric's own son standing in that cesspit who had plunged the dagger into the king's nethers in that crucial final moment, and that Edric made the case that he didn't order his son to stand in a pile of royal Lincoln logs for nothing. He expected to get paid. And the statement here was clear. I gave you the throne. Me. Not these other guys. Me. And without me, you'd be nothing. So I'm not taking your scraps, pal. I expect to be taken care of. And Henry says that Canute listened to Edric's demands considered it for a moment, and then said, quote, as a reward for your great service, I shall make you higher than all the English nobles, end quote. The praise says that he then summoned Eric Lathier and said to him, pay this man what we owe him. Eric, quote, raised his ax without delay and cut off his head with a mighty blow, end quote. The praise adds that Edric's body was tossed over the city walls and left to be eaten by dogs. Though Henry goes a step further, and said that Edric's head was affixed to the highest tower in London, so that Edric would now be higher than all of the English nobles. And medieval writers had a lot of fun with this one for centuries to come, and they continued to tell and embellish the crimes and execution of Edric Strayona in each successive telling. One even claims that Edric was literally catapulted into the Thames, likely so that he could hit that promised height. Another account claims that Edric invented an elaborate loo-based stabbing machine so he could kill King Edmund, like some kind of medieval wily coyote. They really had a lot of fun with this story. But in John of Worcester's account, we get a much more sober telling. He tells us that Canute, knowing that someday Edric would turn on him, just like he had turned on Athelred and Edmund, ordered that Strayona would be murdered while visiting the palace. And then, after it was done, Edric's body was thrown over the city walls and left to rot, as a warning to others. And then we have the Chronicle, which is always a killjoy unless it's describing birds. And it simply states, quote, This year also was Elderman Edric slain at London, end quote. Cool. I mean, it's not like he was important or anything. So just add a short sentence at the end of an entry and literally use the word also to let everyone know how minor this all was. The scribes of the Chronicle drive me nuts. But one thing all the records agree on is that Edric Strayona had finally pressed his luck too far. And honestly, the only unlikely thing about how this ended was how long it took. But Canute wasn't done yet. He had other executions lined up. Northman, the son of Elderman Leofwina of Mercia, Athelweird, son of Athelmar the Stout of the Western Shires, and Beortric, son of Althea of Devonshire, were all executed. And interestingly, according to John of Worcester, these executions actually accompanied Edric Strayona's. 
Further complicating the matter is the fact that these figures were strongly associated with Edmund Ironside's base of power. So that's led some scholars to ask the question of whether or not there was a growing resistance movement against Canute. And it's possible. But at the same time, the praise of Queen Emma says that Canute was cracking down on disloyalty and that he was horrified by the rampant culture of betrayal that had taken root in England. And maybe that is true. I mean, maybe now that he could be a victim to the very same culture that enabled him to seize the throne caused a change in perspective, a kind of for me, but not the approach. And looking at Canute's early law codes, we do see a heavy focus on loyalty and a hard crackdown that extended all the way to the highest levels certainly would be one way to reestablish norms after decades of corruption and backstabbing. So maybe that really was what was going on. But one thing I find very interesting is that John was careful to point out that these three men who were executed were all innocent and thus wrongfully executed. So why include that? And why were they executed along with Edric? John seems to be telling us that these men have been thrown under the bus somehow. But he doesn't say precisely what happened. I mean, maybe it was a rival noble looking to capitalize on this situation. Or maybe it was even Edric. I mean, it isn't hard to imagine Edric saying, pay me, or me and my buddies over there are going to put Edwig in your chair. Nor is it hard to imagine him throwing out names of alleged conspirators, whether they are real or imagined, in an effort to buy his way back into Canute's good graces, after he realized he overplayed his hand. We don't know. But something that strikes me as odd is an entry earlier in John's account. He tells us that the people that Canute called upon at the Council of London the ones that said Edmund wanted the crown to go to Canute and that Canute was supposed to be the guardian for his sons. Well, John says that they lied. That, quote, they bore false witness and foully lied, thinking that he would be more favorable to them and reward them handsomely for their falsehood. Instead of that, some of these false witnesses were soon afterwards put to death by the king's orders, end quote. Well, we just have some people that were put to death by the king. And if these were indeed the same people, it's possible that the Canute was realizing that now he was in power, he couldn't trust people who could be bought and who would switch sides in exchange for cash and prizes. Unfortunately, since we don't have a contemporary record of what happened, it really is hard to say whether these figures were rebels, turncoats, or just scapegoats. But whatever they were, and whatever their alleged crimes... Canute appears to have been mindful of the power structure that existed in England, and he was careful not to make too many enemies. Because while he had them killed, he didn't disinherit their heirs, nor purge their families. Instead, we see their titles flowing to their appointed family members, and their dynasties continuing to serve in high-ranking positions under Canute. For example, Northman's titles passed to his brother, who later went on to acquire even more titles under Canute. Not only that, but his father continued to be a high-ranking Mercian noble. So looking at this, the early reign of Canute appears to have been all about strategy. Edric was useful, until he wasn't, at which point he was a dead man walking. Certain other nobles needed to go, but their families were fine, and so they still prospered, which would then encourage the nobles to play nice, even if they were angry about the executions. Some lands were given to Canute's allies, but overall he was careful to attend to English concerns and even pass laws to address some of the worst abuses in the last several decades. Canute was constantly stroking her hair with one hand, 
while putting you in shackles with the other. And that brings me back to the reconciliation that he had with Edwig, the brother of Edmund Ironside. You see, I suspect that this wasn't a real reconciliation. I think it was a ruse. Because after the reconciliation, something deeply political happens. We're told that there are some people who were close to Edwig who came to Canute and wrongfully accused Edwig of committing some unnamed crime. And given the severity of the crime that's implied in the record, they must have told Canute that Edwig was fomenting rebellion. And it's not hard to imagine that he would have been, or at the very least, he would have been a serious threat for rebellion. I mean, given Edwig's title, the King of the Churls, I suspect that he, like his brother, had the support of the lower-ranking people, possibly even the peasants. And that alone made him a serious threat to Canute. And considering that the Chronicle was careful to point out that he was innocent of the charges, you have to think that it was just the threat that he posed that was the real problem for Canute. And given the nature of Edwig's banishment, not to mention the attempted assassination that Canute had ordered, I don't think Canute was content to live and let live. I think he feared Edwig's popularity. And the truth is that people did appear to love him. They loved him so much, in fact, that apparently even hired assassins refused to kill him. So my thought here is that Canute had decided that keeping his hands clean wasn't working and that he needed to deal with Edwig. So this reconciliation was a way to draw the Atheling out so he could deal with the matter directly. And it worked because we're told that in 1017, on Canute's orders, Edwig, brother of King Edmund Ironside, was put to death. And with that, the last serious threat to Canute's claim to the throne was eliminated, and his hold on England had fully been consolidated. Canute was young, and his first attempt at ruling England after his father had died had seen him ejected from the land and forced to return to Denmark with his hat in his hand. But he'd learned a lot since then. His friends and allies had served him well, and as such, he was now the uncontested king of England and he held that crown with a degree of security and stability that had all but faded from recent memory. He had proven himself to be a clever, resourceful, and decisive leader. And I can think of no better indication of that fact than how he had dealt with one particular ally of his, Edric Strayona. Edric had manipulated two successive kings and used them to his own ends. But Canute was different. He and his allies knew this game well, and they appear to have known exactly what sort of man Strayona was. So instead, they used him. But Canute didn't forget who Edric was. Nor did he fall into the trap of moving on. If he wanted to reestablish norms and stabilize his kingdom, if he wanted to rule in security and peace, there had to be a reckoning. There could be no moving on without addressing the past. And so he addressed it. And that's how the man who had spread corruption, who had been the cause for rebellions against King Athelred, who had repeatedly betrayed King Edmund, had betrayed King Canute, had plotted assassinations, fought against the army of England, had ravaged the English countryside, and who had clearly thought that he was an untouchable kingmaker, was tossed over the city walls and left dead in a ditch, eaten by dogs. The kingmaker is dead. Long live the king. 
This is a listener-supported show, and if you've been enjoying this show and you'd like to make sure it continues, consider signing up as a member. Doing so is really easy. Just go over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign up. Thanks for listening. Six Semper Douchebagus.